You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your murder mystery world tour, and we are here discussing all the way to the end of Agatha Christie's iconic And Then There Were None with Sean Britton in the hot seat. Herds and I both knew the solution to this one, so we brought him on to uh, see how he'd go having bested Christie in the past. And Sean, my goodness, I, I do feel bad because we've both become so used to each other's antics. We know each other's every tell. So over the past couple of weeks when we've just been leading you down the wrong garden path. Yeah. I, I feel, yeah, I feel that was very unfair. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I came here to have a good time. I, uh, I feel attacked right now. <laughs> I think you should, honestly. This has been an assault over the past couple of weeks. I do have to apologize, but it all is in, in good fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's all part of the game because what else is a murder mystery but a, a competition between two minds that of uh. the detective and the culprit, except in this case, it was the same person. I, I will say, when we started this format, on uh, not on Death of the Reader, but uh-huh. on a previous show uh-huh. four years ago now. Too long. I was right where you were, Sean. I was so <laughs> in the deep end. And I listen back to those recordings now and I think to myself, how did I ever believe anything this man said? He's obviously lying. <laughs> the whole way through. So I, I know how you feel and mm. it is painful, but my goodness, what a fantastic ending to this book. Yeah. You can see how it has cemented itself in history with this big twist and then the message bottle showing up at the end, unveiling the whole crime mm. for yeah. something that is so just ridiculous in the way it is constructed. Shelly, before we get too stuck into the solution <laughs> uh, flex, I know you're, you're eager to rip into it, but shall we uh, recap the story? I think we shall. Just for today, for this last time. Ten little Indians went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little Indians sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Ten little Indians traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little Indians chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little Indians playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little Indians going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. Four little Indians going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little Indians walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little Indians sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up, and then there was one. One little Indian left all alone. He went and hanged himself. And then there were none. I think you mean known. There were known. There were known. (laughs) There were known. (laughs) No. But yeah, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed reading this this story through again we just have to give a quick shout to the bear which may be the most ridiculous of the killings yep. a, a man killed by a bear and that marble statue bear was up in like the second chapter uh <laughs> I that was a crazy setup that yeah was, that oh was yeah right setup. it's a long shot and a lot of the a lot of the deaths are, are long shots in that respect they all kind of call back um, and call forward to the solution as well mm. with the red herring being our, our man Armstrong. Like this story as a whole is so interestingly like interwoven with itself. I I don't know. I, I really appreciate that. There's a level of mythos to this in terms of how Agatha Christie actually went about putting this together and the revisions that she went through yeah. and all of the different iterations that this story had to make sure that the premise of the secret killer defeating everyone including Mm -hmm. themselves was pulled off to the utmost and you can see that the little games that Agatha Christie plays with things like the bear with things like the red herring she knows you are so deep in the deep end and Mm -hmm. can't swim (laughs) Sean how did you find this because this is your first time have you had a chance to go over the story again or Uh, well basically since finishing it up I must have been I sort of looked into um, 
Not so much going over the story again, but uh, mm. but looking over some of the different versions and the way in which it had uh-huh. been uh, translated onto film, translated onto stage, <laughs> <Yeah>. and uh, <laughs> yeah. basically to keep that sort of secret going, they'd resulted in in different outcomes, different killers in uh, many of the adaptations. No, it's it's a very interesting uh, interesting story and how it's been you know, changed in, in that sense that's been adapted to a different endings. Um, and that's something that I, I don't know if this is the first uh, movie to do this, but the movie Clue, yeah. I know was aired with different endings, depending on which theater you went to see the movie <laughs> in. Um, I don't know if there is like a true ending, but I know that if you get the DVD copy, you can see all of the different yeah, solutions. Yeah, very really much cool. in the spirit of the board game too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, the, I guess that's that's something that I love about this story is that it is interwoven. Everything pays off in a very specific way, uh, but also every um, ev- everything kind of leads you to the solution because the solution of this story uh, surprising surprising Sean, but surprising no one else. Let's be let's be real here. <laughs> uh, the, the solution is, of course, that the the character pretending to be the detective, the armchair detective, which is a trope seen in in murder mystery, Justice Wargrave. Uh, is is the killer, and he's he's not so much using technical know-how. What he's doing is he's manipulating their paranoia and their suspicion of each other to get you know what he wants. Mm. Yeah. I must admit, when I first came across the solution, I felt a bit cheated. I was like, <laughs> no, fair. Right. I, I was actually, you know, as you know, the solution I came up with uh, last week was the uh, was the young lady uh, Vera mm, Claythorn. Yeah. Who does have the gun at the it's end of true. the story. And very does, suspicious. And I, was, <laughs> I was feeling very happy with myself yeah. up until the point where the police detective goes, yeah, she hung herself and then the chair was put neatly away yeah. in the yeah. corner. Look, I got, I got to say, yeah, I felt cheated and then I was sort of thinking it over. I'm going, well, God, there were some clues there, aren't there? There are some clues that absolutely I, I missed that glaring in your face of how did Wargrave die if not killing himself, yeah. supposedly, uh, without either an 11th person on the island or him doing himself in such mm-hmm. as it were. So, yeah, like I, I did think it was yeah. it was quite clever. I felt a bit sore at first, mm, but then right. uh, I thought it was quite uh, quite clever as it came together. I mean, the thing I do love about that, and we'll talk a bit more about the actual specific mystery elements in the tail end of the show today, but the thing I love about the way that they deliver that to you is that it's never outright mentioned until the culprit's confession what the truth is Mm -hmm. so you have these little nods like oh the chair was pulled away oh this was different that was different yeah and it makes it so much more tense as a reader who's trying to solve it going into a finale where the character detail is so sparse we are basically just left with the sheer panic of the last three characters on the island and that panic is underscored by your panic in realizing all of the little things that poke holes in your solution. Mm, yeah. And it's an amazing example of how the mystery of a story can actually be used to build the tension where so often it can be a detractor because you're so caught in the technical know-how. And that's why I think the mm-hmm. social deduction point is so effective yeah. in this combination. We even get a scene, there's there's one scene that's kind of stuck in my mind where we actually see Armstrong and Justice Wargrave talk about well, you see, I have a plan. I have a plan to catch the killer. Um, Justice is going to pretend to be dead and Armstrong is going to confirm him to be dead so then they can catch the killer unawares. But of course, Armstrong is you know, falling into his trap there. And it's those kind of scenes, the way that Agatha Christie you know, continues to play with your predisposition to suspect anyone mm. and to try to read into scenes uh, that actually causes you to, to fall deep in the rabbit hole. Armstrong was definitely sort of that weaker 
character, that for character sure. looking for somebody to lead him into something. And yep. I must admit, you know, I was going through it and I, I basically thought red herring, I, I did think he was a red herring in the sense yeah. that he was yeah. the most likely to be an accomplice, not the actual murderer. But, uh, you know, he ultimately um, Yeah, you didn't realise that he fell for a red herring and yeah. not just you falling for a red herring. <laughs> yes. And it's one of the brilliant just games that Agatha Christie plays with the poem there. Yeah, I mean, look, the man's name is Justice Wargrave. You might say he has a war on justice to, to put people in graves, you might even say. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's very George Lucas, it's, that name. It's it's truly terrible. <laughs> Mr. Savage Oppress. You know, there's a lot of talk that he brings to the table about how anyone could have done this, even the most weak of us, even the most... He's like shuffling up in his chair. Like, I'm just, I'm an old man, but even I could kill someone if I really wanted to. And yeah, he's doing, he's, that's that's it. That's the answer. And is, <laughs> it, I mean, it's great at, at sort of an early point. And he's the one that brings up the idea that death is the only thing that will absolve anybody from being yeah. a suspect in this one. And he's like, well... There you go. You, you set that one up nicely, didn't you? Yeah, it's kind of fun. That's that's almost become a murder mystery trope on mm-hmm. the tail end of this story in that the only way to actually confirm a character is dead is to kill them yourself. Look, yeah, well, that's the thing, right? If only Lombard or or Bloor had said, you know... Just put a safety bullet exactly, through put his Put a head. bullet, put a <laughs> knife wound in, cut off the heads, you know, sort of thing. Make sure that the dead come can't come back like zombies. And that's why Justice Wargrave is Herds' favorite criminal in murder mystery history. He's pretty good, but <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's correct. We are discussing to the end of Agatha Christie's iconic And Then There Were None here with Sean Britton on Death of the Reader. We will be back with more of that and the solution at the end of the story. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Today we are discussing Agatha Christie's groundbreaking novel, And Then There Were None. We are joined now by the prestigious Dr. Catherine Noski from the University of Western Australia, author of The Salt Madonna, a newly released tale of ominous miracles and small town woes. Catherine, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Thank you. It's lovely to be joining you guys. It's great to have you on the show. On the show here, we like to tackle complicated stories that their authors have spent months and years poring over in order to get the puzzle just right. Uh, Catherine, it took you over a decade to put together this uh, this manuscript of a book. Uh, we, we, we dealt with many island-bound stories uh, recently in Death of the Reader, and, and it seems that the story of an isolated island takes a, a lot longer in the oven than most stories. Uh, what is it about their tight confines that pulls out the inner perfectionists of the authors that write island stories? Um, I, I look, I think partly it's the challenge of writing an island. An island is a, a complex place. It's a world in microcosm in a sense. And, uh, you know, you you have the sort of classic crime scenario of the locked room. Um, Writing an island is is writing a locked world in a a certain way. It's got to be rich and complex enough to to hold itself up. And imagining your way into that space takes time. Living with that space, I think, is is the most wonderful way to write. So, uh, look, partly for me it was a long, slow process by dint of of the nature of how I was writing and why I was writing. It, It started as my PhD. Um, but, uh, you know, too, it, it, it was a, a project and a book and a story that, that needed time and needed space to really come into its own as a world. To, to dive into the sort of, I, I guess, the structure of the story, I, I really enjoyed the framing device of our protagonist, and I use that term 
so loosely given how many perspectives we have that we jump between uh hannah recollecting the events of the story almost like a diary um of what occurred during her return trip to look after her her dying mother on the storm battered island of chisel this trope of a fictional character writing their own story has always uh, fascinated me ever since i read a series of unfortunate events by lemony snicket uh hannah she seems to be working through her own feelings of, of powerlessness and regret for her sin or, or her trauma, perhaps, or of inaction. Uh, in, in your own words, how does that relate to the, the sort of overarching thesis of the novel? Uh, to me, that was all tied in with the idea of the sort of gothic subconscious uh, and, and the way in which so the, the gothic for me was a really important um, sort of area of research when I was working on this as my PhD. And, and Hannah's sort of loss in the past in the same way that the subconscious functions in the Gothic as this sort of well or place uh, of, of trauma that is unresolved and uh, live and, um, you know, unrelentingly erupts into the moment and, and into the day-to-day. Um, so th- this idea of memory and of diary and of being caught across two times and, and two sort of uh, structures of, of tense in the novel as well. So Hannah's, Hannah's writing in the first person and then we're imagining other characters in third person. Uh, that, for me, was all really tied into that idea of, of being sort of caught in another time, being caught in one's own history and, and unable to move past that. Yeah, I, I really like there that, you know, on that note, Hannah even chastises herself at one point uh, for the admitted sin of portraying Mary, who occupies a position like a damsel in a story, is completely powerless, becoming a puppet for the townspeople. However, the story is predominantly told by groups outside of the adult men. Um, other than that one scene from the perspective of the bull, the story is told by daughters, mothers, children, and an old pastor losing his mind. Why tell a story of a damsel in distress that is so actively absent of the male gaze? What do we stand to learn from bending that typically patronizing narrative? Oh, I like that question. Women... Women and female perspectives were, were really important to me. They, they were very much at the centre of it. But more specifically within that, I, there was, I wanted to sort of hit a balance between um, speaking about trauma and speaking about, you know, the sort of suppressed crimes that, that we have in our history as a society, in our, in our contemporary moment too, really. So, yeah, a balance between speaking about that trauma and, and speaking over it or for it. So wanting to acknowledge that, you know, some things are impossible to some things are, are really hard to represent in writing and that people, you know, often aren't empowered, don't have a voice, so can't speak their own trauma in ways that is listened to or acknowledged. So for me, writing around uh, what happens to Mary was the only way to represent that in the book, a sort of a Mary-shaped hole in the middle of the text. I thought it was really powerful reading about Mary without – we don't really see her perspective after she – she loses her agency in a very real sense. Um, and there are sins that are committed on the island that are core to the story that are never really exposed either. I find it interesting. You, you contrast the um, the emotional bearing of the heart of Hannah through the story with uh, one of her ancestors who wrote reports uh, when the island was first colonized about you know seeing the animals and counting the indigenous population i i guess my my question is um is is hannah doing something healthy in the way that she's trying to portray these events is this is this a helpful thing for her to do in in your mind uh no i I don't know that you'd call it healthy i think you would call it compulsive but also i think you'd you'd 
probably say that in some ways there's, you know, there is a reckoning with the past that is still to come and, and needs to happen slowly but surely in our society in terms of colonialism and decolonising uh, our contemporary world, uh, which, you know, for, for a white person is always going to be difficult uh, to do in ways that are healthy because it, that, that's a process that needs to be led by Indigenous voices and Indigenous speakers. We need to, you know, take the position of ethically listening and remove ourselves from action in some ways from that process. Uh, and I think Hannah is sort of caught in the challenge of, of both wanting uh, to enact that reckoning and being unable to do so without causing more harm herself in some ways. Yeah, I really like the way that you frame that as like a compulsion because, you know, there's definitely, I guess, a desire to to right wrongs, but also that contrast in terms of how that actually plays out when you put it into the social and historical context, both in the novel and with the more broad social issues you mentioned there. Yeah, and and there there are some some elements in the book there that, you know, I I don't know that I did particularly well, to be honest. <laughs> there's, there's some things that need a lot of thinking about in ways that are respectful and ways that are productive. Uh, but for me, Hannah was sort of epitomising that that sense of being trapped in one's own history and uh, in the acknowledgement of, of having caused and created trauma uh, as a society and, and not knowing how to get past that or not knowing how to you know, move forward in in a way that won't perpetuate yeah. trauma. I feel like that desire to depict the truth and to de- depict things respectfully is very well, very well channeled, I would say, through the character of Hannah throughout the story. Now, uh, Catherine, I have to admit uh, that I I love a good cult in a story, in a story <laughs> of fiction, and your novel does such an excellent job of showing, you know, mostly reasonable human beings growing into madness um, from one very simple sin that occurs about halfway through the book. Um, I have to ask, do you think you let the townspeople off just a little bit easy for the terrible atrocities that they brought to bear on the young people of the town? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, look, and, and it's funny that you use the word sin there as well in the sense. That to me was was part of why I got so fascinated by this idea of, of cults when I was writing and I did a lot of reading around that. So, I mean, some of my favourite cult novels, the Randolph Stowe's Tourmaline and uh, Laura Elizabeth Willett's um, Beautiful Revolutionary, there's some amazing narratives there of how a cult sweeps up and carries on in its own way. And, yeah, so in that sense, the, the collective madness was sort of reckoned with in a way that individual uh, crime or individual, you know, sin, I suppose you could say, is, is um, not uh, ever... Um, but I think that's something that we need to deal with socially as well. You know, we 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 have grand gestures in our society towards acknowledging trauma or acknowledging crimes, but we don't always um, do so well at, at actually uh, dealing with the individual perpetrators or recognising individual fault. Alrighty. Well, I suppose on that front, we will uh, wrap that there. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's been lovely. Thanks for the chat. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Catherine Noski there talking about the Salt Madonna. We will have links up on the podcast if you want to get yourself a copy of that book and we can thoroughly recommend it. We are discussing Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And 
we are here to discuss the solutions, the mystery, the puzzle of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None with Sean Britton in the hot seat. Sean, you pinned Vera as the culprit in this mystery, and despite a last-minute escapade with a gun, she was not the criminal. It was, in fact, Justice Wargrave. Mm. To be fair, she was a killer in the end. She did, it's true. She did shoot a man. Realistically, if you are trying to pick a killer in this story, you could have correctly picked just it's about true. anyone. It, I mean, that's fair. I'm going I'll, 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 I'll go with that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Full points. Nah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true, though. Out of all the characters you could have picked, you did pick the one who survived the longest mm-hmm. uh, and was able to you know, kill someone on the island. So congratulations to Vera. If That's this was a Hunger Games-esque story, perhaps <laughs> this would be a worthy victory. Yeah, you, you, might have, you might say that you earned one-tenth of a point. Oh, I'll take that. <laughs> add that to the, the tally. I mean, as I said, look, I, I was feeling very good about yeah. my solution, you know, as I was mentioning, the the evil alter ego that kind of sure. revolved around the sea and seaweed. I thought I was really onto something until I saw that uh, that bit about the chair had been moved after she hanged herself. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that we get a little bit too much of Vera for her to be the killer by the end of yeah. it. We see her uh, her, interp- her interpretations of other characters and these discussions that she has with, with MacArthur and Emily Brain. Like, she's illuminating them, but in a way that uh, we, we see her internal thoughts and she's... You know, she's talking to Emily Brent. She says, oh, my goodness, Emily Brent is a monster. But if she was already there to kill everybody, would she have that reaction? There's lots. There's yeah, lots, I yeah. think uh, part of it came down again. And maybe I'm just giving myself an out. That's uh, okay. Excuse. It's part of the fun. But I guess part of the interpretation of, of mental illness in that particular mm. character, you know, I think I was seeing her as somebody who was genuinely a bit nuts and yeah. you have to be a bit nuts yeah. to do this thing on the island. I think Agatha Christie's reaction was like, well, this is just what a woman would do in that stressful situation. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but glad you said it, Sean. <laughs> well, yeah. funnily enough, when we when we look at our rules of murder mystery, one of the least favoured is the fifth Uh-oh. of Knox's, which is that no Chinaman must figure into the story, which is to say that the, the obvious outsider shouldn't be the one that does it. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that I think the modern print versions do better is mm-hmm. that because they've stripped out a lot of the anti-Semitic material, mm-hmm. it actually makes the mystery better because so much of the original text points out that Justice Wargrave is Jewish, and he then becomes that Chinaman outsider in this story yeah. uh, that not only kind of undermines the game a bit, but it, it also means that we have uh, one of those clues taken away and it becomes less about the stereotypes and the mentions of him being predatory and like an animal and hunting through this entire story hits so much harder when you then go for the reread. Yeah. I think that uh, this story is made a lot stronger because Justice is able to essentially uh, tell us his philosophy, you know, that anyone can be a killer. Mm. Because that isn't just about the people on the island. That's about anyone who comes into his court of law. And in a sense, then, this uh, this island is his court of law, and he yeah. is the only one. He doesn't have a jury to, to try and persuade with speeches. Uh, he has a group of 10 uh, that he has judged guilty, and all that remains is to carry out their sentence. I mean, you will at least be walking away with one point today, Sean, <laughs> I think, on account of the way that you pinged two that discrepancy of justice in the story and the way that clearly someone was out for vengeance on account of the terrible things the other characters had done. I guess the other question we had then, Sean, <laughs> yep. was as a reader coming through and seeing the solution, you mentioned that you felt cheated. And obviously, you know, you always feel a bit cheated when you're wrong at the end of a murder yeah, mystery. I that's think, that's yeah. just the feeling. But there was there any particular detail that you think back on in this story and think of as the cheating moment of the cheating element? 
Yeah, I did. I did question how he he managed to get carried up the stairs with not so much as a a grunt or <laughs> that, a sort of a, a rising chest. That is, thing, yeah. yeah. We have to assume when we're talking about the the mathematics, the mathematical theory of murder mystery, that when when the culprit walks into a room with an innocent person with any kind of murder weapon, they will die instantly. That is that is how a murder mystery works. Um, that is that is the element of fantasy to the locked room. Yeah. Is that once the door is locked, anything can happen behind the it? Fantastical mathematics of murder mystery. Exactly. I think it's go. just got the makings of a good comedy skit where they're bringing <laughs> Wargrave yeah. up the up the stairs. Ooh, watch his <laughs> head. Oh, jeez. Oh, Armstrong's oh, like dropping oh. him back down the stairs and a great big tumble <laughs> down the stairs. Oh, we'll go get him. It's yeah. okay. He's dead. He can't feel it. It's fine. Yeah, it's no problem. And I think maybe by the fact that Armstrong was so suckered so easily. You know, yeah. you've really got a guy mm. telling you, look, pronounce me dead and it'll be fine. You know, just pronounce me dead and then I'll figure it out yeah. from from that point on when obviously the killer, cool. if there was somebody else, is going to know they didn't actually kill Justice Wargrave. I yeah. mean, you know, like yeah. if, if you've been told, pronounce me dead, the killer's going, hang on a second, how'd that happen? I, I, yeah. I was all, I was off doing this, this other thing. Um, but then I must admit, you know, like I say, it, it set it up quite nicely. On a mm. on reflection, I realised there was really nobody else that could have done it other than mm. uh, perhaps an Anthony Marsden or an Eleventh Man, and I was kind of yeah. past Anthony Marsden by that point. So yeah, I was, yeah, I was kind of like, well, no, actually, you know, that was that was quite cleverly done. It also is quite interesting that of all of the deaths in quotations. Justice Wargraves is the one that feels the most final because all of the others, you know, they're poisons, they're mm. disappearances, aside from the axe to the back of the head. I forget that one. <laughs> it's in very veiled language that it says to you that we can't actually see the wound, we can only see the blood. Mm. So if you accept the word of the characters that it is a gunshot wound, you immediately think, oh, well, the back half of his head's just been blown clean off. <laughs> but we don't actually see that on the page. And it's, again, the type of trick that tends to show up in these you know, everyone in the cast dies murder mysteries yeah. where it's only possible in text because if you were to show it on screen, It'd the way so it works wouldn't be convincing. Yeah. I must admit I was very distracted at that point. Uh, I distracted myself with the thought of how they silenced the gunshot. That was my mystery yeah. at that point in time. Yeah. I was like, how did the killer silence the gunshot? And I got I got wrapped up in that more so than who actually did it, I guess, or who possibly well, could do it. Yeah, yeah this is this is always the point you have to come to when you're solving any murder mystery. When the novel is asking you one question and you can't think of a solution, the answer is probably that you don't need to ask that question, mm. you know? Because <laughs> the answer isn't how did they silence the gunshot. The, the, there isn't even a question there. The, the question is, was there a gunshot at all, right? Um, I think the tone of the novel also is... It's much grimmer, I think, than most murder mysteries of the of, of the age. The humanity of the cast and the sense that, you know, everyone will die by the end is really tangible. It creates a sort of sense of fear as well. It is interesting, the humanity, just on the basis that they are largely horrible people. Yep. Um, you know, Vera That's, is terrible. Yeah. She, did, she did a terrible, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Lombard did a terrible, terrible thing. And they're almost our protagonists at the end, and we're still so caught up with them as viewpoint characters that we mm-hmm. are kind of dismissing their actual actions in the past, yeah. their, the, the quality of their character. And I think that's one thing, you know, often we uh, we just kind of say the murder mystery world tour at the start and just go on our merry way, not really addressing how the tour goes because we don't want to spoil you on too many books it's by true. pointing out where the illusions lie. But if you look back at the past few books we've covered from the Tokyo Zodiac murders to this, 
I yep. think you can hopefully see the kind of map that we've tried to lay out in terms of the detective having to be a just individual, the way to create atmosphere and a sense of finality yep. in a cast full of terrible people, mm-hmm. trying to look at the technicalities of reworking this style of puzzle that Agatha Christie innovated with, and then there were none, and now we've landed here. And obviously you, Sean, coming in here, you know, being thrown in, as I said at the start, the absolute complete deep end. <laughs> yeah. You know, we can see with a kind of set of fresher eyes why it's still so great to read today. Yeah, I uh, I think the only thing that I think stood out to me by the end as being a little bit silly was that they they just kind of told the people around the island that there were what was it they were doing a like a Survivor Island thing. <laughs> and they're like, please, if you hear any gunshots or any screaming or people dying, if you see blood on the wind on the windows, please do not come and help. That's a that's a bad thing. Yeah, I kind of liked that's that the fishermen was basically like they were all told yeah. that story, but the fisherman was like. Hang on, that sounds like nonsense. This, this, like, <laughs> yeah. literally, no. I'm, I'm gonna go check out what's going on. And it just happened to be the storm, obviously, that of course that kept him away. But like, I did like that there was a character that goes, "This doesn't sound yeah. right. Yeah. There's a problem here. Maybe we should check on the the ten crazy people on the on the island." Yeah, well, I mean, uh, without the storm, could have been a very different sort mm. of story. Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to revisit, and then there were none. But I think it's about time that we embark on a new adventure. A new um, adventure? Sean, you will not be joining us for this, but I, this is tangentially related to the last time we came up on the show when we covered the murder on the Orient Express. We were on a train. Mm-hmm. There, there was a killing of a, of a rich man. Point being, uh, we're going to be going on the last Express starting <laughs> next week. We're going to be doing two uh, two episodes. We're going to be covering this video game, which I know is blasphemy, blasphemy. on the show. But this is a game that came out in, uh, what, 1996, I want to say. And it's a huge part of my childhood and, like, why I got in a murder mystery in the first place. Yeah. Herds has been pushing to do this since we started the show. Since the first day, pretty much. And I figured that we should uh, revisit Agatha Christie before going on a little journey with interactive fiction. We'll have a few things up. By the time you're hearing this, we'll already have done a few live streams on the internet of us actually going through the interactive stuff we're going to play. We'll be covering on next week from Paris all the way to Vienna. Sean, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It is a pleasure, as always, having you on. Anytime. You are listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. We are Flex and Herds. We'll see you next week with Jordan Mechner's The Last Express. Don't (sighs) miss it. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. We're out of here.